Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, and we'll be talking about his work as well as his book, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. Our DNA doesn't rigidly determine our health and disease prospects as previous generations of geneticists believed. According to the new science of epigenetics, our genes are shaped by what we think and what we do. An endless supply of new studies is showing that the vast majority of our genes are fluid and dynamic. Our genetic profile may signal an inherited vulnerability to a disease but those genes cannot predict your future. Instead, our daily choices and lifestyle behaviors determine whether these vulnerable genes will be switched on or switched off. And that means our actions have a direct and powerful effect on our genes, changing their expression so that we can achieve optimal health. Kenneth Pelletier is a PhD in MD and a clinical professor of medicine and part of the Department of Medicine, Department of Family and Community Medicine, and Department of Psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine in San Francisco. As the, at the University of California, he is director of the Corporate Health Improvement Program called CHIP, which is a collaborative research program between CHIP and 15 of the Fortune 500 corporations. For more information, you can visit his website, which is drpelletier.com, and that's D-R-P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ken to the show. Good day, Ken. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, as am I, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by the, you know, new shift in, in um, our view of our genes and, and what they what they determine and what they don't determine, so I'm really looking forward to sharing with the listeners, um, you know, all of that information. So, um, I, I think probably the best place to start is that, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, there's been a shift, in, a, kind of a paradigm shift in what once geneticists thought as the role of genes um, to what the, their, the percep, uh, perception is right at the moment. So could you, you know, and, and I believe that you were part, maybe, you know, part of that shift, you know, in, you know, believing one thing is, but then through learning have changed. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what they used to think and what the current thinking is? That's a very good question. Um, 
the human genome, the mapping of the complete mapping of the human genome took place about uh, 20 years ago. And at that point, uh, scientists thought, we have the Library of Congress, we have all of the information we need about the human being, the human body, its, pre its predispositions to disease, to health, et cetera. And the reality is we didn't really complete the mapping of the genome until about six months ago, filling in the gaps of what were called the dark genome. And it turns out that these, quote, dark genome areas are actually responsible for expressing or suppressing the gene. And that's the essence of epigenetics, which is that we have a genetic code, no question about that. Um, but whether or not a particular part of it is expressed or not is dependent on everything that happens after we inherit uh, that particular gene. And I think that what I would add also, and, there's a, and, and that began the field really um, probably seriously in about 2012, so about the same time the code was being discovered. But we also were discovering through some, some very groundbreaking research around 2012, 2013, is that identical twins did not manifest the same diseases. In fact, there's quite a variation between the two. So we somehow said, well, if they're not, if they have the identical genetic code and not showing up with the same diseases, something else is going on here. And that really has led to the current field, if you will, of epigenetics, which is quite new. Um, it's evolving very, very rapidly. Um, and I, I guess the last thing I would add is that one of the things that we have found is that somewhere between 5 and 8 percent, 5 and 8 percent of what we see as adult disease, as adult longevity, healthy aging, is due to what are called monogenic or fully penetrant genes, meaning if that gene is present, it is so powerful that no matter what we do, it's going to show up. So, but only five to eight percent. So that means somewhere between 92 and 95 percent of what we see as adult disease, as longevity for human beings, is the result of things that occur after the genetic code is inherited. That's quite a striking statistic. It is. I mean, you know, because, you know, it used to be. Now, when you mentioned the dark genome aspect, is that, you know, long ago we used to call, we used to say that there was stuff called DNA, you know, and um, is, is, is that dark genome part of what, what that used to be? I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the term referred to. Um, well, but it was just something, you know, I remembered. Yes, it's the same. Uh, it was called junk DNA because we didn't know what it was, and then it was given, a, uh, if you will, a sexier name of the dark <laughs> genome because we knew it was there, but we didn't know what, what it was doing. Now, in the last year, really, we're really discovering that the, these areas within the genome that are not mapped precisely the way that the bar graph is, uh, of a genome sequence, that these are actually influencing the gene directly as to whether or not it will express itself. So you may have a predisposition to high cholesterol, um, but 
if the, if the dark genome, if you will, adjacent to that gene is not allowing it to be expressed, it will never be a problem. Uh, on the other hand, you may have very low predisposition to high cholesterol, but if you have a lifestyle of diets and lack of exercise and stress that creates the occasion for that gene to be expressed, it will be expressed. So that variability is the essence of uh, epigenetics. Wow, interesting. So can we um, explore a little bit on the, the idea that um, as far as influencing our DNA, um, that it can be influenced by thoughts, um, actions, and environment. So, you know, this, and I believe those would maybe have been the uh, contributing aspect to why maybe twins um, um, have varying expressions of disease because of those aspects? Yes. Uh, that study... Um, actually, the 2012 study was by uh, Dr. Bert Vogelstein, who's one of the most eminent and most frequently cited scientists in the genomics area um, at Johns Hopkins. And he followed, I believe it was seven or 8,000 sets of twins uh, over quite a length of time, and he looked at uh, 24 major diseases. And they basically asked a simple question, which is if one twin had a disease, what is the likelihood the other twin would have the same disease? Well, if you're a geneticist, if you're a, if you will, deterministic geneticist, you would say absolutely that the genome, the gene is the same. Of course, they're going to show the same disease. And what he found was totally the opposite. Uh, what he found was that in the case of heart disease, if one twin had heart disease, the other one had a 50% chance of heart disease, so it's chance, flip a coin. Um, for Parkinson's, mm -hmm. um, there was less than 5% likelihood that if one twin had Parkinson's, the other twin would also have Parkinson's. So he went through all of these major diseases, and most cancers, I believe, were around 40%. So if a, if a gene had, a twin had one form of cancer, the other twin maybe had a 40% uh, chance of, of cancer. Now, the real kicker here is that when you looked at a single disease, so heart disease, heart disease, one twin to the other, it did not predict which other diseases the twin might get that one twin did not have. So just not having heart disease did not guarantee you wouldn't have other diseases show up. Uh, so that was a real uh, eye-opener. Uh, it, it, it was the first study that convincingly demonstrated that something else was going on, and he attributed it to the environment, to diet, to stress, to pharmacology as, if you will, a causal factor or the factor that allows the gene to be expressed. That was the first major study, and it still stands as a, a landmark study. Wow. That, that's, that's fascinating that they, you know, that it's kind of pretty much a standalone, you know, as far as the uh, um, appearance. Now, when you said like 5%, when it came to the Parkinson's, um, to me, I'm, I'm just stunned at that low, I guess, correlation or, you know, the low probability. Um, yes. So does that then indicate that Parkinson's is more 
the the advent of, of Parkinson's is, is much more in the you know think do in the environment realm rather than the genetic realm. That's a very good question, and that we do not don't. There's no answer to that question. However, mm-hmm. what there is is in the last year or two, looking at environmental toxicity, exposure to petrochemicals, mm-hmm. exposure to herbicides like Roundup, uh, and which is glyphosate, that uh, there is a very very strong predisposition to developing Parkinson's as an adult when an individual has been exposed chronically to herbicides and pesticides. The other is traumatic brain injury. So the more trauma a person has had to their brain, falls, fractures, sports as a young adult, that predisposes uh, to Parkinson's as well. So what triggers the Parkinson's deficit in neurotransmitters remains unknown, but the causal factors are also need to be explored more fully, but it is not genetic per se. Yeah. Wow. I, I just find that fascinating. Um, so now, um, when, you know, when the idea of our genes um, kind of being fluid, you know, ability to change or, or to, you know, that through our thoughts, deeds, or, or environment can impact our genes, um, how much of that is um, kind of uh, handed down? You know, I mean, when it comes time for us, you know, how much did our, our parents, you know, their um, thoughts and beliefs, for example, influence the DNA that was passed down to us? And in turn, you know, for us, you know, how much of our changing or the fluidity of genes get passed down to our children? That's uh, most, most frequently um, you will have genetic predispositions, what are now being called predispositions. So they're not mm-hmm. causal. So a trait in a parent is not causal mm-hmm. to a child, but it's predisposing to a child. So if a child has uh, attention deficit disorder, it's not necessarily an inheritance from the parent, but the parents will tend to have pushed the child in that direction through their upbringing. Now, one of the wrinkles, and this again, we're talking in the last year, that really is fascinating, is that genes can skip generations, which adds a new dimension altogether. The way that this was discovered was kind of fascinating, is that they were they were a group of Israeli researchers looking at the likelihood that the offspring of the survivors of Nazi concentration camps would have a high predisposition to stress. They would be very mm-hmm. stress-reactive, stress-sensitive, and suffer from all the related conditions. But they found that that was not true. They did not find a higher incidence. However, when they looked at the grandchildren of people from concentration camps, they found that the grandchildren had a high predisposition to stress. Their interpretation of that was that the offspring of of the concentration camp survivors did not want their children to suffer and go through what they've been through. So they took care of them. They nurtured them. They tried to give them stress-free environments or coping skills. But then when those parents had children, they forgot 
they didn't realize that they needed to do that for their children, and so that genetic predisposition from the grandparents showed up in the children, in the grandchildren. That was an astounding finding. There's been a subsequent finding from Ireland, actually, looking at obesity. And they looked at the obesity of a grandmother, and they asked, does that show up in the child? The answer was no, not with any certainty. However, when they looked at the grandchild, they found that the same gender grandchild, so the grandmother, if she was obese, her child, her daughter, was not necessarily obese, but the granddaughter tended to be obese. So it skipped a generation and showed up in the granddaughter. Now, how this occurs, why this occurs, is one of the increasing number of questions that come up in the epigenetic area, but it makes it even more fascinating as a field of study. It is. And, you know, I've, I think it's just um, interesting. You know, quite often I've, you know, looked at the, you know, grandparent, grandchild relationship and, you know, often wondered, I mean, it seems to be so um, strong, you know, I mean, you know, and that, of course, you know, you can, you know, count in the, you know, the parents and their, you know, the, the responsibilities they have, uh, the way of, of discipline, of, of raising, you know, a child, you know, their responsibilities versus a grandparent. But it seems to me so often there is a very strong bond between grandparent and grandchild. I would, <clears throat> excuse me, I would agree with that. And what you're describing is an anomaly, in, if you will, in Western culture. We tend to not have intact families. We tend not to have grandparents exerting tremendous influence over grandchildren as, as a rule. However, it's a change in gears. If we look at the blue zones, the cultures where people live to be 110 and more, what you find is that the grandparents have a major, major role in everything. They're not discounted. They're not set aside. They're not dismissed. They have major control over finances, over marriages, major decisions around inheritance, uh, food, uh, you name it. Uh, the grandparents are the ones who really govern the family. So they have a direct impact on the grandchildren. So it's not surprising when you see these multi-generational families of very, very long-lived people that a lot of that can be attributed to the direct impact of the grandparents in raising the child. Ah, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, um, I'd love <laughs> to be able to, to study that or, or find out, you know, kind of more about that when it unfolds. Um, so, as we are going through, you know, with having, you know, identified the, the genome and, you know, identifying, you know, markers for particular disease, um, is there, um, are, are we going to get to the point where we would be able to identify, you know, a good majority of the, you know, most common diseases that, that man experiences? Short answer is yes. <clears throat> there are, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, 
I've been in the Antarctic for the last month, and so I've got the, the cloud oh, Antarctic. <laughs> um, but uh, the short answer is yes. And there are uh, – right now, it, it used to cost those seven or $8,000 to map the complete genome for an individual. Now it's a few hundred dollars. So it is possible now to map your individual genome. So it's like you would have – the Library of Congress of Robert, <laughs> unequivocally. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. the question is, how do you interpret that? Do you want to study philosophy, physics, English literature, Latin? I mean, what do you select out of the Library of Congress to focus on to interpret and understand? So it's one thing to map the complete human genome, which is certainly possible today, there are a number of companies that are, are, are doing that, some good, some bad, by the way. Um, but the fact is that we still don't know how to interpret the biomarkers. Some are very clear. Uh, our research uh, here at UCSF is looking at three levels of interpretation. One is the gene. So that we liken to the blueprint of a house. It's your basic blueprint is who you are genetically. Secondly, then, is your blood chemistry. So how does the gene show up in your bloodstream, which basically fuels and creates everything else in your body? And sometimes it shows up, other times it doesn't. Uh, and why does that happen and what does that mean? And the third level is then the microbiome. So everything between your mouth and your anus, it's the whole intestinal tract, which is What's it like to live in the house? So the, the blueprint, the house is the bloodstream, and then how to, what's it like to live in the house is the microbiome. When you have those three aligned, then you can make a pretty accurate prediction about a genetic biomarker that's going to be a problem or an asset, by the way. You can also, you know, it's not always looking for disease. It's looking for uh, undeveloped uh, skills that so someone might be a musical prodigy and really not know it, and you can actually see a marker that may, in fact, indicate uh, a musical prodigy. So there, we are getting to the point of where it's possible to map it inexpensively. We're beginning to see the linkages between the gene, the blood, and the microbiome. And I would think that in the next five to ten years, we're going to see exactly what you've described, which is the ability to track and determine, again, not to become a hypochondriacal, <laughs> you know, and to have your gene check every six months or whatever it is, but to simply know what's your game plan and how can you help to change it and, are, and is what you're doing effective? That's a big question. <clears throat> the last thing I would add to this, which is makes it even uh, my certainty about this prediction a little more certain, is that there is a, a thing called the X Prize, and I don't know if your listeners have heard of it, but the X Prize is a foundation that puts up a lot of money for major challenges. So one of the best-known X Prizes was, I think it was a 10 or $12 million prize for the first solo flight around the world, and that was done about five years ago. Well, in November of last year, November of 2023, um, the X Prize announced a $100 million prize. 100 million. It's the largest prize or challenge grant that's ever been offered. 
and the the $100 million prize will be awarded in 2030. what it's for is the challenges that a person, that the research institute, the group, has to develop an intervention that enhances human longevity, that is measurable psychologically, immunologically, and physically. It has to be stable, it has to be over time, and it has to be achievable within human beings. Not within animals, not within cells, but for human beings. So far, they've had about 2,000 research institutes from all over the world uh, submitting their ideas and engaging in the research. Now, if you have 2,000 research centers from all over the world engaged uh, going after a $100 million prize, we're going to get results. <laughs> so that, that makes me optimistic that we're going to be able to answer your question definitively, I would say, within the next decade. Wow. <laughs> that is that is some pride, but... but um... In the largest time that has been offered. Uh, in fact, the uh, owner, the uh, founder of Lululemon, the exercise clothing oh, company, mm-hmm. he personally has an, an, a neurological disability. He can't walk a straight line. He wobbles and bends, and he can't. He literally he has other, not no other issues, but he can't walk a straight line. So he decided that because one of the areas is musculoskeletal that has to be improved, he put up an additional $10 million that if any prize includes a, an insight or a cure or an intervention for his particular condition, he'll add $10 million more. So it's really a $110 million uh, prize, which is absolutely staggering in the world of science. It is. It is. And now, with the – requirement being um, over time, measured over time. Um, what What is the um, duration? Kind of what are they looking toward to say that, you know, yes, this is effective? I mean, you know, the idea of 2030 is just around the corner, um, really, um, from 2024. So uh, would it have to be um, – kind of discovered and tested and, and replicated um, before that 3030 or 2030 or, you know, yes. is it? <clears throat> Short answer is yes. And there okay. is the actual RFP, Request for Proposals, from the explanation mm-hmm. is 47 pages. <laughs> so the answer to your question is buried in 47 pages, but in <laughs> essence, they have to demonstrate that the change is measurable, that it endures uh, over time, so that it would endure over X number of years. I don't know if they designated, but my guess is it would be on the order of three to five years, that it would be a stable change, detectable and measurable over three to five years in human beings, and would have to be effective in three areas, the mental, psychological, the immunological, uh, area and then the, the purely physiological or musculoskeletal area. And it has to affect all three. It has to be permanent, if you will, over three to five years and be measurable. That's the critical factor, which is it can't be impressionistic. It's got to be actually measurable in an objective way. That's a real challenge because in reality, we have very few measures that tell us how old we really are. It's not your birthday. 
it's some biological age, and we really don't have certainty about how to measure that. Yeah. Wow. That I mean, still, it's it's um, fascinating, you know, to first of all to have that incentive, you know, for, for yeah. researchers. <laughs> Nothing motivates more than a nice big research grant or or you know prize uh, to be achieved. Yeah. Well, it's caused quite a stir. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, we're, we're about halfway through the show, um, Ken, so I want to go ahead and take a quick break. Um, and then when we return, um, I read that you often state that it's not mind over matter, but mind that matters. So maybe when we get back, we can kind of delve into that a little bit. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder, we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, www.byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to the more than 1,700 shows we have aired during the past 13 years. Also on the site are links to the products and services we provide, books, photography products and services, calendars and greeting cards. There is also a link to our account at Fine Art America where you can purchase items such as mugs, prints, pillows, and more. Our show is available as a free podcast on multiple platforms such as iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Audible, with icons to each platform on our homepage. We are also available on social media platforms such as Facebook, X, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Threads. Our website, www.byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, and we're talking about his work as well as his book, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life creating optimal health with the new science of epigenetics. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is drpelletier.com, and that's D-R-P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. Okay, with that, we're back again. Yes, hi. Okay, So the idea of, you know, know, it's the – Quite often we hear mind, you know, it's mind over matter. Um, but then you're, you prefer um, that it's, or say that it's not mind over matter, but mind that matters. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just, you know, that saying and kind of how it really should be, you know, it's the mind that matters? That's a, a, a interesting distinction that I do make. Um, and I try to differentiate between um, the kind of voodoo uh, concept of you close your eyes, you see something, it makes it, and it makes it happen and manifest. That's a kind of metaphysical, 
thinking, um, which is not necessarily accurate. What, what I mean by mind matters is that, yes, you can, in fact, visualize an outcome. You can use visualization. You can use meditation practices, yoga, et cetera, to, in fact, improve your health and outcome. But it's dependent on the choices you make when you exercise that choice. And it's the choice factor that's most important. So once a person realizes they're not a victim of circumstances external to themselves, that they can govern their response to those circumstances, no matter how difficult or terrible they might be, there's a margin of choice. There's a classic story about William James, who's really the founder of modern psychology, that he was in a terrible depression. And he roused himself from that depression by realizing he had a choice between one thought and the next. He could choose to have a depressing thought followed by another, or he could choose a depressing thought followed by a positive thought. And that allowed him to rouse himself out of the depression. But it was all the choices he made subsequent to that insight that allowed him to do that. And that's what I mean by mind matters. Yeah, that's um that is such a important distinction, you know, between um you know, because I you know, first of all the idea of, you know, simply visualizing something what what really got me is like the secret, you know, the idea of law of attraction yeah. you're gonna you know, close your mind or you're gonna basically will it into existence and that just always bothered me because I knew that there you know, there it really did involve actions. You know, the, the, you know, you can use your mind all you want, but you know, until you take some actions toward that goal, then you know, it's to me, it seemed like it was wasted energy. You know, um, so now the idea of when you hear people say "fake it till you make it." Um, <laughs> That's another one that gets me. Um, what you know, kind of what what is the you know the idea behind that, and how does that kind of stand up against you know it's the mind that matters? Well, I think fake it till you make it um, is again it's a fantasy that if you mm-hmm. visualize success, it will automatically happen. But the the truth, and so that that's if you will the rubric. But the truth is that if you, in fact, focus your attention intently on being a success at whatever it is, uh, computer uh, uh, algorithm, uh, musical instrument, that your mind will, in fact, follow and sequence what you need to do. So the simple intent is, I would like to play the violin. Okay, that's fine, but you need to take lessons, you need to practice, you need to find an instrument, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many, many steps that then follow that allow you to become an excellent violin player. That's the trick, which is the consistency, the persistence over time that makes all Mm. the difference. Our mind is, our body is both naive and intelligent. So if you tell your body over and over again, I'm weak, I can't exercise, I don't have the time, I really don't like it, your body will follow. It will become weak. It will won't want to do it. It will rather be a couch potato. On the other hand, if you tell your body, 
I'm strong, I'm vital, I can do what I want to do, even if it's three steps a day, I can do that, I feel better because of it, your body will also follow that directive. But it resides in that choice point of the mind and the decision of what you need and want to do with your life to make it better. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I thank you for that. That's a, you know, very uh, clear um, example of, of what one would need to do, you know, as far as bringing into existence what it is that they want. Um, now, I want to kind of talk a little bit about stress. <laughs> uh, you know, for a long time, people have recognized, you know, that stress does impact our health. Um, you know, and there are there's things called short-term stress and long-term stress. So can you maybe share your perspective of, you know, both short-term and long-term and how it impacts our genetics? Yes. You actually have made the most critical distinction of all, which is short-term versus long-term. My original research in the going back to the mid-'70s uh, looked at differentiating short-term from long-term. So short-term stress is when the stress, the source of stress is immediate, identifiable, and resolvable. And that's a very positive, adaptive response. So if you step off the curb and a car honks mm -hmm. its horn and you jump back on the curb, you don't get run over, you live, you mm -hmm. survive. So it's a, a positive survival mechanism. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of our pleasurable activities, be they skiing or skydiving, are short-term inductions of voluntary stress. You voluntarily do something exciting and exhilarating. It's stressful to your body, but it has a positive outcome. So there's nothing wrong with a type 1 stressor. The type 2 stressor, the long-term one that you pointed out, that's where we have a problem because, again, it's the body being naive relative to what the mind perceives. So what you perceive to be a stressor, your body will react as though it really is. So if you think an IRS audit is threatening, your body will respond with a full-blown fight-flight response. Adrenaline will increase, heart rate will increase, electrical activity in the brain, blood pressure will go up. And the problem is that with long-term stress, the source of stress is not immediate. Who knows when that audit will occur? It's not resolvable, and it may, in fact, continue beyond the point of, of being productive. So worrying and constantly being revved up about this audit is what's going to produce the negative biological effects. Now, the type 1 stress and type 2 stress have the same biological responses in the body that I just described, but when they're long-term, they either become symptoms, so uh, increase in blood pressure becomes transient blood pressure. If it goes on for too long, it becomes hypertension, and it becomes a condition in and of itself, or it contributes to heart disease. So it's really this, this type 2 stress response. And generally, we have three basic responses to stress. The fight, to prepare for combat or to run away. Uh, flight. Uh, a fight, uh, a flight, which is to run away. Fight is to engage in combat. Flight is to run away. And third is freeze, which is not often recognized. But that's when you get symptoms like depression. You get musculoskeletal reacerbation of arthritis and musculoskeletal 
pain and contraction. So the body just locks into a rigid position. If you think about animals, if you watch, they engage in combat, they run away, or they freeze and hide. So freeze and hide is something that we do as human beings as well. It's not a productive response, but it's a common response that we have. So we have these two types, and I think the last thing I would add is that we can learn. All of us have a particular sign or symptom that we're under type 2 stress. It's when the stress has gone on for too long, it's counterproductive, and it's beginning to affect our health. So you have headaches, you have tight neck, you have clenched jaw, you have a you know, stomach that's churning, a back pain, uh, racing thoughts. All of that tells us you're over your limit. You need to do something. And the do something is to have a practice of a stress management technique. It can be anything under the sun. I've given up guessing what people do to manage stress. But it's this Really, if you practice that and you say, okay, I know I'm over the edge, I'm going to take a deep breath, I'm going to close my eyes for literally 30 seconds, and I'm going to restore my baseline, you can do that. So you're not a victim of the type 2 stress, but you need to recognize it, and you need to then practice taking charge over it. That's the solution to the, the stress issue. Um, so, Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay, that that's great. And and you know, it's good to to recognize uh you know, the you know, type one and type two. Um, you know, I I'm certainly not <laughs> very much a type one energy uh adrenaline junkie. <laughs> but, uh, so so uh but that but but it's good to know, you know, as far as uh, the difference between the two and the impact that they can have. Um, so now, um, I believe that, that you have, you know, written about some patient recoveries um, or survival with people who even have terminal diseases. So, um, you know, and, you know, I, I just think that it's, you know, fascinating when we have examples that, you know, kind of defy what seems to be accepted belief. So can you maybe share with us, you know, a, a couple examples of where you've um, seen people um, survive, which may be, you know, with some challenging conditions? Yes. What It goes back to our um, discussion about mind matters. And my first experience with a patient was probably in the early 70s. I was a, just an assistant professor uh, at UCSF, and the eminent anthropologist, Gregory Bateson, um, Margaret Meeting, Gregory Bateson, were, were married and really founded the creation or created the basis for what we know as modern anthropology. Uh, Gregory was a regent of the University of California, where I was a, just a, an, you know, a, an assistant professor. And he was hospitalized with an inoperable lung tumor. And he had to decide uh, whether or not to undergo surgery and chemotherapy or, in fact, to outlive whatever remaining life he had. The kicker was that his daughter wanted to write a book with him, and he had promised her to do that, and he really wanted to, 
and he realized that if, um, if in fact he underwent the surgery and chemotherapy, he wouldn't have the mental ability to focus and write the book. So his wife, who I, I knew him by way of being an instructor. I didn't know him well, but I, I, we just knew each other's student mentor. His wife and I knew each other, and she said, called me up and said, look, Ken, um, you know, Gregory doesn't believe in any of that mind over matter stuff that you, you believe in. He just doesn't. He's just, and I said, well, yeah, I know that. And he's brilliant and I can't fool with him and I can't convince him otherwise. She said, but he would like to talk with you because he has to make this decision about whether to go into surgery and chemotherapy or forego that and, and live out his, his life. Can you help him? And I said, I don't know. So I went and saw him. He was hospitalized in the, the uh, main Moffitt Hospital at UCSF. And he and I began to work together, and I, I wanted to do a visualization with him. I wanted to understand the basis for his ability to make this decision or not. And every time we got to a certain point in the visualization, he would fall asleep. And my response was, oh, poor Gregory, he's sedated, he's sick, he's just he's been through an exploratory surgery. And then I realized he fell asleep every time at the same place. So I said, Gregory, when you fall asleep, I'm going to dig my finger into the back of your hand, and you just give me a little flexion with your, with your index finger, letting me know you're awake and you're with me. Is that a deal? And he said, yes. So we did that, and we did go through a visualization and by the way, he he and I, with his patient-doctor relationship, we had agreed not to talk about it, except uh, about a year later after he, he was out of the hospital, he actually talked to the New York Times about it and gave permission to be able to convey the kind of detail we're talking about now. Um, and he had a distinct um, a visualization of an interaction between himself and his father. His father was a contemporary of Darwin, Charles Darwin, and was mm. a very hardcore scientist and really uh, basically put down everything that Gregory thought other than hardcore biological reductionistic science. And it was this major confrontation he had with his father that he was still carrying with him and was blocking him from thinking about seriously writing this book, which would challenge it, et cetera, et cetera. So when he, when we finished the visualization, uh, he then, you know, it, it wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't like, oh, you know, a miraculous cure and the lung cancer uh, disappeared. But he decided that he wanted to live out whatever life expectancy he had. They'd given him about three to six months, uh, given right. the of the tumor. Um, he decided that he was going to live out whatever life expectancy he had and write as much of the book as he could. He moved to Esalen Institute. He lived for more mm. than two years. He finished the book. He and his daughter achieved what they wanted to. He went to Esalen, and in fact, when he died, his wife Lois said he was very, very happy. He felt he would lived a very full life. So it wasn't that the tumor suddenly and miraculously disappeared. But he mm -hmm. outlived by a factor of four or five times his predicted life expectancy because he had this desire, this will to live, to help his daughter write the book. And you see these reports in the medical literature about people who live, you know, a year beyond their life expectancy to see a grandchild um, 
mm-hmm. uh, graduate. That's that's fairly common. Or someone who lives to there, there's a common observation around holidays that around Christmas there's a trough among Christians before Christmas and there's a spike afterwards. It's as though they want to make it to Christmas and afterwards it's okay to die. That's a very, that's a long-standing observation. So it demonstrates the mind can hold sway over the body even when the consequences are dire or even leading to death. To me, that's one of the most um, powerful examples of the fact that mind matters. Yeah, that that is amazing. And, you know, it seems that that, you know, desire, you know, to live, to experience something in particular, you know, is um, is a driving force. You know that that um, people, you know, can um, utilize, I guess, you know, you know, yeah. to or can employ in order to, you know, make the best of whatever time they do have. Kind of a yes. quality yes. type of thing. Yes, and you see the opposite which is, again, you know, a kind of a, a medical cliché, if you will, is that if you have a patient who's depressed and they're talking about their depression or they're suicidal and they're talking about their suicide, that's problematic, but it's okay. When they stop talking about suicidal or they stop talking about being, dep- being depressed, that's a sure sign that something very negative is going to happen because they've made up their mind. They know they're, yeah. they're not vacillating anymore about suicide. They've decided. They've, they're not vacillating anymore about whether it was time to die or not. It's time. So that's a, a kind of a red alert that every physician knows you have to be aware of when you're dealing with patients who are extremely depressed or suicidal. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Now, we have enough time for one more topic, um, and that is life expectancy or, you know, um, recently I've kind of been reading a little bit about telomeres um, as, as biomarkers. Um, yeah. Never, never in, in all of my education, never, ever heard of anything called that, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, it seems to be um, an interesting topic. So can you talk a little bit, of, you know, about that and kind of how that, fits into the idea of life expectancy? Uh, yes. So there's um, the telomere is an X-shaped chromosome. So a chromosome is a bundle of DNA, so it's, but it's X-shaped. And the X has two dimensions. One is the length of the arm, and the other is the integrity of the tip. So the length of the arm, if it's long, it indicates an, a longer life expectancy. And the tip, if it's intact, it's like the uh, cap on a shoelace, okay? So if the, mm. if the shoelace is intact, it's easy to thread your shoes. If it's not, it's a problem. But the length of the arm and the integrity of the tip are the two things that you measure with telomeres. And our particular research group here at UCSF is headed up by Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize in 2009 for a discovery of the telomere. So it's been around a longer time than than we think, but the reason that it's become so critical is because it's an objective measure. If you look at a telomere, you can tell if a person has short telomere and a frayed end. It's predictive of a shorter life expectancy. 
if you see a longer arm and an intact tip, you know the person's got a long life expectancy. What, to me, what is fascinating is that Elizabeth and a couple of other faculty did a research project here several years ago where in a matter of 12 weeks with a program that had diet, uh, stress management, physical activity, social support, um, they measured telomeres before and after this 12-week period, and they found that the telomere actually became more intact. It elongated, the tip became more intact in 12 weeks of practicing the kinds of lifestyle influences we've been talking about. Now, that's very powerful that a practice, a lifestyle, a diet, a, you know, exercise, stress management can affect a telomere at the biological genetic level is an astounding finding. And that's what's really captured attention. The other is that because of the X prize we talked about, the $100 million prize, is a telomere is one of the most uh, accepted measures of uh, expected uh, of longevity and life expectancy. So that's going to be part of anyone's measurement in terms of outcomes for the X for the X prize is going to be the nature of the the telomere. Wow, excuse me. Yeah, that I, I just find that fascinating. You know, the, and and the idea that it can be influenced in such a short period of time by you know one's actions that one can take. Um, for a healthy kind of lifestyle. Yes. And, you know, there's uh, – we one of my favorites is a bit of a sidebar, but it's it's kind of a – puts a, a sharp point on the telomere issue is how, how susceptible, how vulnerable it is to change. So one of my favorite studies is actually from NASA. Now, NASA has one of the largest databases on genetic – epigenetics of twins. And someone might say, why? And I asked the medical director at NASA, why do you have this database? And he said, well, what we're realizing is that long-duration spaceflight has a direct impact on epigenetics. And we really need to understand that because we may have the technology to go to Mars. We may have the technology to live on the moon, but we don't understand the genetic changes that happen. So one of the, one of the, the best studies is that uh, in 2018, Scott Kelly had the longest duration space flight uh, on record is like three, almost, almost a year. Um, and he has a twin brother, Mark. So Mark Kelly is married to uh, Gabby Giffords, who is the representative mm -hmm. who was uh, shot. So they have a genetic, they're genetically identical. When Scott Kelly returned from this year in space, they found that 7%, 7% of his genetic markers had changed relative to his twin. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a little or a lot, but consider the baseline that what separates human beings from chimpanzees is a 1% to 2% genetic difference. 1% to 2%, that's all that separates us genetically from chimpanzees. So a 7% change is huge. Now, they just published a study six months ago as a follow-up, and they found, and telomeres was one of those functions. In space, the telomere actually elongated and became more intact. So it looked as though he was extending his life expectancy. When he's back, uh, I think 4%, 3% of the, of the genetic markers 
regressed. They became normal to prior to his spaceflight. 4% did not. One thing that changed back was the telomeres. The telomeres shrank and became, mm-hmm. um, you know, more normal. But the fact that it occurred in a year uh, is, is, again, an astounding testament to how flexible it is. The last thing I'll add to this is that the with the 4%, it's critical because it's twice as much as separates us from chimpanzees. What does it mean? Has he become invulnerable to cancer? Has he developed a new autoimmunity disorder? We have no idea what this 4% change means, but we need to find out uh, because it's going to be affecting every astronaut from going forward on any long-duration space flight. Wow. That is, that is, this is fascinating. Excuse me. You know, and, and the, uh, the degree of change. Um, now, you know, if they're not able to, um, identify specifically the markers, how, how can they measure, like, a, measure to show us 4%? You know, I mean, what, how are they able to determine, you know, 4% or, or is that the 7% change, you know? Oh, it's um, just before. So they have his, uh, they have his markers before space flight and they have his markers oh. after. And you can see which oh. ones have changed and which ones have not. And they also have the baseline of his identical twin who also has the mm-hmm. same biomarkers, same genetic markers, but obviously has a difference in uh, expression because one was not in space and the other one was. And the variable is then this long-duration uh, space flight. That is just fascinating. Well, Ken, thank you for your time today. I've just been intrigued from the time we started, so I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this discussion. You've asked great questions. I hope my responses have been up to the task, but uh, I, I want to thank you. This has been a really uh, great discussion. Over and beyond my expectations. So, so thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, everyone, thank you for joining us for today's edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. My Again, my special guest has been Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, um, and his book is called Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, Creating Optimal Health with the New Science of Epigenetics. Again, you can find that anywhere that buy your book. Um, and again, visit. be sure to visit his website, which is drpelletier.com, and that's D-R-P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Our Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to BiteRadio.me's Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. To become a show follower, visit www.blogtalkradio forward slash bite radio me and click on the follow link. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at bite radio me. Be sure to visit our website at www.biteradio.me. That's B-I-T-E-R-A-D-I-O dot M-E. And until we meet again, Remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.